Debriefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences, and dreams. The basis of competition is changing. Rivalry is shifting from well-defined industries to broader ecosystems that deliver expansive value propositions. Industry boundaries are collapsing everywhere we look. Emergence is around the corner and this trend is just accelerating. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Rod Adner on ecosystem strategy and the value underpinning the design of such. Ron is Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the Tax School of Business, Dormouth. Welcome, Ron, and thank you for joining me at the briefing today. Oh, thank you, Mattia. It's great to be with you. Pleasure is mine. So boundaries are shifting and a new paradigm for strategy is shaping up. A new game is being played. You write about winning the right game in your latest book. Can we actually, I'm curious, can we actually win our own game? Oh, yes. I think that's the, the probably the, the, the biggest threat facing companies today is, well, if you go back 20 years, what everybody was concerned about was that leaders and companies weren't paying attention to the changes around them. I'm not sure that was 100% true then, but it's definitely not true now, right? Today, everyone is looking everywhere for threats. So the challenge is no longer that you don't realize that things are changing. It's that the way you're responding to that change is unproductive. And I think it's interesting that when we look at a lot of, uh, of cases of failure, we today, we tend to misattribute failure where we blame it on people who didn't try to do things, who, who weren't active, when in fact, those folks were active, but they just, they, 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 they were pursuing the wrong set of goals. And kind of the, the tagline for this book, Winning the Right Game, is, you know, the implication is that, yeah, you could be winning the wrong game, and winning the wrong game can be the same as losing. And do you have any case studies of any company that won the wrong game? Well, you know, the, 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 the starting point for this book is, you know, the, the most overtold and actually most misunderstood failure case of the modern era, which is the story of Kodak, right? And I suspect, you know, anybody listening to this podcast has heard that story. I'd be surprised if it was less than 10 or 20 times. Um, and always the story is told the same way, which is, oh, this company Kodak, they dominated the old analog world of photography and they made all this money in films and developers. And then they invented digital photography, but they were too tied to their old ways. They refused to adapt to the new environment and the future gets taken away from them by Sony and cameras and HP and printers. And then Kodak goes bankrupt and that's the end of the story. And the moral that is told from that story, the moral that's drawn is, wow, don't be sleepy like Kodak. Don't be like their leadership. And it turns out that story is 100% wrong, right? That, okay, it's true. Kodak invents digital photography. It takes them 15, 20 years to realize how big a deal it, it, it is. But starting in 2000, Kodak undergoes this incredible transformation. And they realize that there's so much money to be made in digital printing that it is more 
compelling than what they're looking at in analog printing. And they go through this transformation. They become the number one seller of digital cameras in the US. Um, they become uh, the number four seller of, of, of uh, inkjet printers in the world. They invent all kinds of new inks, right? Because everybody sees how much money there is in printer ink and paper. And so they do this incredible transformation. They shift from being an analog printing company to being a digital printing company. And now they're still die, right? They still go bankrupt, but it's not because they didn't manage this incredible digital transformation. It's because as they were becoming a digital printing company, digital printing gets replaced by digital viewing, right? That, you know, part of what we're seeing, what's happening in the environment is that you know, screens are replacing paper. And so even though they were incredibly successful in the race they were trying to run, they were trying to beat HP in the printing market, it turns out that being successful there didn't matter when the entire story disappears under the pressure of ubiquitous high quality screens in your pocket and everywhere else. So no one is printing photos. And in doing so, you use some peculiar words that for some people could mean something, for others could mean something else. So maybe it's better that we, we start this conversation by defining such words. So what's your take on ecosystem? How, how do you define ecosystem? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's really, it's, a, it, it's interesting, right? If you step back and listen to like the, the, the shift in business language, Right? You can't have a conversation today without somebody bringing up this word ecosystem. Right? It's like the buzziest of buzzwords. Um, most of the time when that word is used, though, it doesn't really mean very much other than you know, things happening together, right? a mishmash. Um, and th the fact that this word is used so frequently tells you that people are really aware that today it's not enough to think just about yourself and your competition. Um, but the fact that you can use mishmash as a synonym um, tells us that, you know, there's not much more behind it. So the, 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 the first step in actually understanding ecosystems and building ecosystem strategies is anchoring the notion of an ecosystem in actual structure. So the way I define an ecosystem is it's the structure of interactions among the multiple partners that come together to create a value proposition. That's the, the most concise definition that I have. And the, the, the critical parts of that definition are one, that it's anchored in a value proposition, right? It's not anchored in any one company, certainly not anchored in your company, right? When, when companies anchor their ecosystems in themselves, um, they fall into what I call the ego system trap, right? It's suddenly the, 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 the when you view your world through your, with yourself as always central, you make it much harder for you to understand how to one, align these other partners, right? Which is the other part of the definition. And two, how to think about structure and roles in a proactive, productive way. Um, and so the, the starting point for ecosystem strategy is understanding the structure of interactions that give rise to this value proposition. And it's a very different starting point than discussions that we have about industries. Right? Because when we think about industries, you know, in industries, there's a lot of interdependence already, right? Supply chains can be very long, but we don't have to think about structure because structure is fixed. Everyone knows, okay, you're making a car. Someone's going to ship you the, the, the seats. Someone else is going to ship you the dashboard componentry. Um, and so even though you may have a lot of 
supplier and distribution relationships are all very clear. No one is arguing about who should be where, right? When we, when we start talking about this mobility ecosystem, that's when structure and partnerships become a strategic debate, right? Suddenly, you know, if you're Ford and GM, here comes Uber, the taxi company, saying, yeah, 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 we're going to move people around. And also, we think we should be in charge of autonomous vehicles and we'll invest in making the brain. Right? That's a totally different role, a totally different position. By the way, it doesn't mean that they're going to win, right? They're withdrawn from that proposition, but it's clearly a signal that the game is changing. Right. And, and to understand ecosystems is to understand that it's that how the game is changing, not just that it's changing and then crafting a strategy for how to respond. In your definition, you mention value proposition and the act of creating such such value. However, it is nuanced because we're not talking about industry based innovation, but we're talking about ecosystem based innovations. And here the value proposition is spread across different organizations. And each organization can be replaced by another organizations to really align on uh, on delivering the value that is underpinning, you know, the, the innovation. So, who should be the starter of delivering such value? Well, you know, it's 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 a great question, right? Because everyone should have a sense of the value proposition they're going after. But there is a question about who should start and who should try to be in charge, right? The the, the, the challenge that companies and leaders and companies have when they think about ecosystems is they know they're going to need partners and they automatically, they tend to default into a thought process that says, well, we're going to be in charge. We'll pull them together. And the problem is if that same thought process is happening with all your partners and everyone has the plan how they're going to lead this ecosystem, then you have a room full of leaders and no one is following. Right. And, you know, a leader without followers is just a guy in a suit. Right. There's no it's it's the leaders that make the followers. I'm sorry. It's the followers that make the leaders. Right. So the answer to your question will depend on who is in a position to attract, to create followership. Um, and I, I think, you know, that, and, and that, by the way, creates a, a, a totally different conversation for design. Right. Before the call, we were talking about, you know, what does this mean for designers? is that as you're thinking about that value proposition, it's no longer enough to think about the value you're gonna create for the end consumer. You wanna think about how you're designing it for everyone that you're gonna be collaborating with. A new set of, of ideas actually, right? Both challenges, but also opportunities for design thinking. You mentioned design thinking, which has been used extensively in the last uh, years, decades to bring values and create values internally in our organizations. But now we are looking and stepping outside and say, how can we bring the value in a, in a bundle of organization to uh, the final users, customers? So it's, it's hard to... So do you feel we need to democratize the value across and within organizations and do we need to build a common language that can help and support delivering such value? Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. right? I mean, it may not it, it may not be entirely democratized, but it's certainly open, right? And there's one of the the, the, the critical things, right? And kind of, it's the second time you've mentioned language, which is great, 
in order to coordinate, in order to collaborate, you have to have somewhere, some, some, some way of interacting, right? And that's where we do have this need for a new language um, that, you know, that's, that's a big part of what, you know, of what this book is about. It's a big part of what my prior book, The Wide Lens, was about, right? It's, it's both in the context of how you think about innovation, which was the topic of the, the, the first book, and how you think about competition and, and strategy with a big S. We are the existing language that we have is strained. And so a big part of what I try to put in, in, in these books is, you know, beyond the case studies and the frameworks is, is, is thinking about those frameworks as a language for articulating, giving a grammar for coordinating action. It feels to me that there should be such an ecosystem literacy to understand, describe, talk around ecosystem strategy and how the value proposition created within an ecosystem then they can deliver a, a value. You also talk about minimum viable ecosystem, MVE. Why of it and what's the potential of building a minimal viable ecosystem? Yeah, so I, this is, this is a, a, for me, this was like a big aha, right? Which is, so yes, talk about, you know, minimum viable product, we have all kinds of ways of trying to understand um, customer needs and then testing whether our proposal is actually going to be satisfactory to the customer or not. Right? That's, I, I, would, I would, you know, I'd say boldly, that's basically where design thinking is, where prototyping is, whatever label you want to put there, it's, it's really focused on the end consumer. Um, and obviously, if you don't have that right, you don't have a seat at the table. An ecosystem, however, um, the reason we need to think about an ecosystem is when the way we create our value extends, requires cooperation, collaboration beyond our, ourselves and our own organization, our own piece of the organization. And then the challenge becomes not just, you know, what do you want to build? It's how do you bring partners together to help you build it? And the, the notion of a minimum viable ecosystem Right, which is so this is like you know chapter three of this book, and I talk about it towards the end of Wide Lens as well. But the 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 the, the big aha is how do you construct an ecosystem? Well, you don't do it alone and you don't do it all at once. It takes a process to align partners, to convince partners that you're worth collaborating with. And so the idea of a minimum viable ecosystem is to think about, all right, what's the set of partners I really do need to bring together to create the final win that I want? And then think about, well, what's the smallest subset that I can possibly convince at the get-go to start off? And what kind of evidence do they let me create? Not to, conv to convince my end consumer that this is a good idea, but to convince the next set of partners that it's worth entering this collaboration so that at the later stage, we have something that is closer to what we imagined at the starting point. And it's only then that we really show the end consumer the full vision and get the full excitement and the full reward of what we, what we initiated. Um, and so this, a big part of you know, winning the right game of, of, of ecosystem thinking is kind of reprogramming ourselves to you know, throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s, all this attention was pushed on innovators, which is you can't innovate for yourself. You have to think about your end consumer. You have to make sure it makes sense for the end consumer. 
end consumer, end consumer, end consumer, all that is true. My big push in trying to put structure around ecosystem thinking is to remind people that you could be overly focused on your end consumer and that in an ecosystem setting, creating and aligning those partners is at least as important as getting that end consumer and highlighting the fact that many failures today are coming about not because the innovator has a bad idea or can't execute. It's that they can't execute on the broader plan, which is they can't bring together the required coalition to actually deliver the ecosystem promise. And so it's patient towards partnership and putting the, your partner strategy on the same footing as your customer strategy. Delivery in an ecosystem is a team sport. Everyone has their roles and everyone has to commit to their role. And I love you putting this perspective into, into words and share with, with many. Because again, if we talk, you know, we mentioned a couple of times before language, you know, language is very powerful to, to share perspective, to, you know, help others understanding things. And then we can take it from there and expand, of course, but the, the, the starting point is, is sharing. So having a language around a concept that can be shared. And by building partnership in the ecosystem, innovation can, can then be delivered beyond just, you know, your capability as a single industry. And you can really deliver higher quality innovation to the world to, you know, that can sustain the planet that is more regenerative and it's more powerful as a whole. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I, I completely agree, right? I mean, it's, you know, without language, you can't share a perspective, right? And if you can't share a perspective, you can't work with others in new ways. By the way, even if you're not working with us, you can't, you can't see change that's happening around you in new ways, right? And in some ways, that's what makes that Kodak story so interesting is, you know, so again, for 10 years, people have been saying the reason Kodak failed was because of poor management, right? So now, you know, here I have a much, you know, as soon as I say it, it seems very obvious. And people are like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, it was a screen in our pocket that spilled Kodak. They didn't have a chance. I get it, let's move on. And that's a mistake, right? Because what we should be doing is asking, so how, why did we get it wrong for 10 years? And the answer is because the tools and the perspectives that we were applying to this problem were all focused on what's happening inside this company yeah. and blinding us to not just what the company actually ended up doing, but to any alternative explanation, right? And so the I mean, in the same way, look, there's a reason why people have been told this Kodak story so many times, right? It's because the, whoever was telling them the story or paying the speaker to tell them the story was trying to motivate action. And it turns out that the lesson that was being taught in that storytelling session is not the right one, yeah. right? Kodak being more, you know, working more on becoming a better digital printing company would not change their fate. Instead, right, what we need is a different way of thinking about the value proposition and how it's changing. And, you know, as I lay out in the chapter, which by the way, I should have mentioned, 
This first chapter of the book, the entire Kodak story and the first set of frameworks is posted and it's free on my website. So anybody listening or interested, you know, the reason I wrote the book was to share these ideas. So, you know, if you go to ronadner.com, you can read it for free and then share it with your friends who can read it for free. Um, and the reason I think it's so important is because we're confronting so many changes in the world today, right? Look, right now we're still, it's 2022. We're still living with COVID, right? COVID is an ecosystem disruption, right? It's not a traditional health crisis, right? It's not something that can be solved just within the confines of a hospital, right? I mean, it's affecting world trade, international relations, it's everywhere, right? And so here again, we see this disruption that is crossing industry boundaries, um, right? Kind of this, this, you know, to the extent that social sector silos are industries, right? And we're going to be seeing more and more of this going forward. And that's why I think it's so critical that people um, are, you know, able to, you know, develop or benefit from a, a set of tools that is built specifically for these kinds of settings where it's, the 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 new challenge is managing interactions rather than just ma managing action. I agree with what you said that underlying your thinking, there are some connotation of time and timing, the release of of innovation. I mean, we are talking on a on a virtual conference tool that before COVID, yes, we might have used it, but not as the extent that we're using now and that company became a massive company in, in a span, in a short span, because COVID changed completely the need of people. So back to the customer's need and what people need to, to do their task. So how is timing? Because we talk about the importance of language. We talk about, you know, a team being aligned on the ecosystem strategy and mindset setting partnerships, strong partnership to build that ecosystem. However, everything of those that we mentioned has a timing component related to that. So how is timing important in ecosystem strategy? So you're, you, I mean, you're, 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 you know, you're, you, you, you're highlighting, you know, a critical, critical issue, right? Which is, you know, chapter four of this new book as well, which is, it's not enough to be right about what's going to happen. Right. You need to be right in the vicinity of when things are going to happen. And usually um, when we think about you know, disruption and we think about change, um, we, we tend to worry about being too late. Right? It's like, oh, the change happens. And if I didn't adapt in time, I'm dead. There's a big challenge, at least as, you know, if, if your number one fear is being too late to the party, number two fear should be to be being too early. Right. It's being ready investing resources, and then finding out that the rest of the ecosystem isn't coming together and you're just sitting there waiting, right? And so the way to think about timing an ecosystem starts with a recognition of what else needs to happen in order for your effort to deliver material value. And then paying as much attention to progress in that ecosystem as you do to your own internal efforts, mm -hmm. right? And once you can see that, you can begin to make a better guess about when things will or will not happen. And even if, by the way, it doesn't mean that don't move until everybody else has moved, but it does mean that if you know that there's some uncertainty about other people moving, 
the kinds of things you want to be doing internally will be different, right? There are some things that you can invest in that you know will have a long shelf life. There are other things that you know, you know, they have a shorter shelf life. That, you know, if, if you're investing in, a, in, in, in componentry that today looks cutting edge, two years from now, we know whatever semiconductor you put in today is going to look old two years from now. If you're collecting data, however, it may well be that, you know, the data you're collecting today is, um, is, 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 is spectacularly uh, suited to not just today's algorithms, but even tomorrow's algorithms, right? And so in this story, right, data is an asset that maintains its value longer. And so you'd be more tempted to invest in accumulating that um, than in some technology development that is going to look old within a short time frame. And so to this point, if a new player is coming into this ecosystem, trying to disrupt that ecosystem that you know, few couple of organizations have established before. What are the tactics, the strategies of the players within that ecosystem that can I, you know, that can enact to try to to survive, to push back, or to even thrive within that ecosystem? So you know, it's a great question, right? Because it it's it and what it does is it expands the the, the view of competition about it's not uh, when will my thing replace some other thing, it's recognizing that often it's one ecosystem competing against another ecosystem, right? And what you wanna look for is not just, is the thing you're trying to compete with, the thing you're trying to replace, when will you beat it? But it's when will your ecosystem deliver more value than that other ecosystem, right? So there's, you know, I think one of the interesting examples of this in the book is the competition between barcodes and RFID tags, right? So barcodes, you know, you see them on the sides of, of laundry detergent and, and, and cereal boxes, right? That was a, a, a fixed technology that was introduced in the 1970s um, that, you know, initially was, you know, to help people uh, for, at the cash register scan prices. Um, and then people started using that information for tracking inventory, but it's a pretty limited technology. Starting in the 1990s, people thought that the great technological replacement for barcodes will be radio frequency ID tags. And these are tags that have a chip inside and the chip can give you all kinds of information that you can possibly hope to contain within a barcode. So this is you know, one technology competing against a different one, the new versus the old. But what happened was, even though the barcodes themselves didn't change very much, the ecosystem around barcodes transformed. Computers went everywhere, back office, front office infrastructure. Suddenly you could take this barcode data and create so much information through so much analytics that it, it, it made the, 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 the challenge for RFID to make a claim that we're so much better than barcodes. It just, the, the hurdle went up and up and up. Um, and so here we are in 2022, you know, finally RFID is having kind of more of a mainstream moment, but it's a mainstream moment that's come 20 years, 30, 25 years after the early investors had made their commitments, right? So there's, you know, a huge amount of money that's been lost on RFID in, by being 20 years too early. Um, and it wasn't because the core technology wasn't ready. It's because the competing ecosystems 
were mismatched in a way that the people focused just on the chips didn't quite understand. Specialize, extend, diversify, niche. Those are the four strategies you mentioned in the book and describe and talk about those for ecosystem to deal with disruptions and be able to overcome it. And I really like particularly the niche because I was reading 15 years ago, another great book that was talking about how companies are trying to copy and become good in what a competitor is doing. And therefore by doing so, we reach a plateau. So every company is doing good on everything instead of being the best on something and being okay on other um, product or, or value that a company wants to deliver. So I really love those four strategies that you uh, describe and put forward in your book to deal with ecosystem uh, disruptions. Yeah, well, again, it's it, it, it's an option, right? That's not always Absolutely. the dominant option. Um, but it, so those the, those those four suggestions, right? Specialize, extend, diversify, niche were the the strategies that are open to companies who are confronting ecosystem change that for whatever reason they can't participate in. Um, and the, the, the which which is a, a, another kind of it's, it's another important strategy choice that we tend to not talk about, right? Which is sometimes change happens and a realistic assessment says you're not going to be able to totally transform yourself. And if you can figure that out, you now have choices, right? Like these four choices that we just listed. It's if you can't figure it out, if you delude yourself, no one's gonna stop you from spending your entire organizational resource on a change that you can't manage. At the end, you're still gonna find out you can't manage it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of what uh, the, the toolkit here is supposed to help, whether you're, you're leading a company or you're an observing an, a company from the outside as an investor, or if you're inside a company, right? I mean, we, we like to tell these stories from the perspective of a CEO, most people aren't CEOs. Most people are working inside the company. And so that doesn't mean that you can't have your own strategy, right? It's, it's even more important for you, who's still working for a living, to figure out, am I in the right place, right? Is the company pursuing the right strategy? Or should I find something, some other place to create value? Um, and so in all these cases, what we want is a, 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 an honest, robust assessment of strategy. And, you know, the point of these backup strategies is that even if you can't win, even if you can no longer maintain your position in your existing game, you have options, right? So it's not just, it's not just jumping ship, reinventing yourself, et cetera, but it all comes down to having a realistic perspective on the situation. And as we said, in order to have that perspective, you need to have, you know, a wide enough, a clear enough lens on the situation and a sufficiently robust language to be able to describe and analyze what you're seeing. And that's, you know, that's really what this work is about. I agree with your perspective. And so can we say that those two are the two fundamental pillars to build an ecosystem? Yes, no, I, I think this is, for me, this, this was a big aha um, that came out of writing my first book. 
Um, and so both these books, which you know, by the way, interesting people should read them, read both. Well, like they're they they're, they 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 work together very nicely. Um, but and they both have you know frameworks that you can use to come up with better answers. And when I wrote Wide Lens, um, I was really kind of my big focus with those frameworks was like you know how do you use these for analysis? And of course, a great framework should let you do a better analysis, and they all these frameworks do. But the aha was once I started working with companies on this, um, is how important these frameworks are as a language for explaining a logic to people who aren't you, right? I mean, so the, you know, what a framework does is it gives you a logical structure for coming up uh, with a decision. However, you can take any framework and you can make it give you whatever answer you want. Right. And so if you use a framework, honestly, it'll give you a better answer. If you use it dishonestly, you can skew it and get whatever you want. The real value, though, is you use the framework one way. I used it a different way. And now it gives us a way of comparing our biases, our intuitions, what have you. And that's how we can get coherence, because now when we disagree, we don't agree at the don't disagree just at the top line of oh I think we should go left go right, the framework lets us say ah this is where our logics diverge, and once you see that now you can come to a convergent decision oh you can convince me I missed this or I can show you no it really is this, and that's the only way you can get coherent action in an organization which is the only way that an organization can be productive, right, is with coherent action. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned a lot in this conversation uh, frameworks. Um, so maybe we can expand a little bit on, on the frameworks and which frameworks are used to build ecosystem strategy. And I'm also interested to which are the people that take part of those activities, that, you know, where those frameworks are used. Because you also mentioned before uh, CEO, or, or not CEO. So how you know how can we build that nice conflict, you know that positive conflict to to expand that uh, understanding. Um, well, okay. There's a lot of interesting questions in that question, <laughs> right? Um, and I I think a really big one is so where does ecosystem strategy live in an organization? Um, and the answer obviously is oh you know it should be everywhere it should be throughout. Um, but of course, it's not everywhere in the organization that strategy is built. It should be that everywhere in the organization is informed by strategy. Um, so that's one thing. So that's why everyone in the organization needs to have an understanding of this language. But where that you craft this ecosystem strategy, um, you know, it's still going to reside at the top of at least an initiative, if not the company. Um, but the participants in creating that strategy will probably come from a wider set of people within the organization because the perspective that you need needs to understand both what is happening, not just with your customers and your rivals, but now you know in your external ecosystem with your partners. Um, and also you, it's what one of the really interesting things that you know it's become clear to me, again, kind of this is, this is really more from applied work with organizations is that every time you come up with a new strategy for your external ecosystem, it has to be matched with some adjusted strategy for how you're going to work 
in the internal ecosystem that is your organization, right? You go to market in a new way, that's gonna affect something in sales. It's gonna affect something in service. It's gonna affect something in marketing. And the more of this you can bring into the initial strategy, the more effective your rollout will be. Um, and so, yeah, so, so you know, the, the question is a really good one, which is, yeah, the way we build these strategies is going to itself be somewhat different than, you know, a traditional strategy where, you know, I've got a product line extension or you know, I'm just starting a, a, a new division to go after an existing industry. That's different from I'm going to change the wiring and how I plug in on the inside and the outside. It is of interest to me to understand if there is a comparison between incremental and radical innovation to, you know, a standard way to do strategy and this ecosystem strategy that can be more radical in the way that uh, operation needs to be done, you know, partnership needs to be uh, sign off and, and the value itself is delivered in a different way. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm not sure if it's right. There's a, there's a, there's a, a great, you know, really well-cited academic paper by uh, Rebecca Henderson and Kim Clark called Architectural Innovation, which was, you know, they were looking much more at product design. Um, but there is this notion of architecture here, right? And, and you know, in, in the book, you know, I, I talk about this different construct, which is a value architecture. Um, and so it's less about the, uh, usually when we talk about a radical innovation, it's like, you know, a totally new technology, right? It's like you used to have airplanes with propellers and now there's a jet engine. That's a radical technological change. This is less about um, a, a radical change in the technology than it is about a change in the way in which you're interacting with, with, with your partners, right? Whether it's the, your position, whether it's your role in the ecosystem, um, towards it's, it relies less on new technology than a new way of, of bringing value elements together. And so in that regard, it's, it's more subtle. Mm -hmm. Right, you see a jet engine on day one, you know, oh my God, that looks different. I need to do something. Right, the question is, you know, can I get you know the right kind of engineers to do this this totally new way? Um, you know, you look at mobile payments; it's not that radical. I just need to find a new way of interacting with merchants and banks and uh, and, and consumers. And it turns out that that may not have a radical technology shift, but it's a massive change in the structure of inter interdependence. Exactly. Yeah, and, it's changing the paradigm of, of yeah. payment. Yeah, and so kind of the need to be careful about how to not just how to envision what it would look like, but how to get those folks to play in the way that you want them to play, as opposed to fifty other ways that are possible in order to get to the same value proposition. That's what an ecosystem strategy is about. It's how you align those other players into creating this value proposition in this particular way with you in your particular position. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Juan, for chatting with me about ecosystem. I'm curious, what's next for you? What's next on the ecosystem strategy journey? Well, so it's interesting. The um, kind of the, the, the research I'm, I'm, I've been doing this you know, work for quite a long time now, but where I'm focusing a lot of, uh, of attention now is how individuals operate within this context, 
And so I have some uh, actually interesting academic work, uh, particularly with a co-author, Dan Feiler, where we look at decision-making choices and how they change depending on whether the, uh, the choice is, 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 is explicitly framed as happening within a context with partners versus people not being aware of the partners. Um, and then at a, at a more macro level, this idea of how does, how does the internal ecosystem of an organization link up to the strategy for the external ecosystem? Mm-hmm. And kind of thinking about how those two need to be linked up um, is kind of opening up new ideas for me, particularly around you know, this notion of, well, what, is, what does it mean to do change management in this kind of context? which I think is going to end up being really important for well, what does it mean to really successfully execute on an ecosystem strategy? Ron, all the best for that. And uh, your contribution to know has been outstanding so far. So I can only look forward to learning really more of your, of your work. And again, thank you so much for being here with me at the briefing today. Ciao. That was a great pleasure. It was great to be with you. Thank you. The briefing today unplugs people's creativity by embracing the wonder of change. It seeks inspiration from maverick innovators and change makers to share their stories, experiences and dreams. 